0: Welcome to Culture Crossings, a podcast for globally mobile millennials with cross-cultural identities. We share stories about our identity, wellness, and career development for young professionals on the move. In season two, we are curating a
1: series of interviews with other globally mobile millennials on how they are navigating their careers around the world.
0: In this episode, we have Zishu Chen, a column writer and education innovator specializing in China and the US. Zishu has an interdisciplinary background in education and economics. For college, she went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the U.S. She also has a master's degree from Harvard Graduate School of Education. In this episode, she will share her experiences in both China and the U.S. as a student and later working in the education industry as a professional to create a learning environment where students could prepare themselves to navigate their future in both contexts. Welcome, Zishu!
2: Hello, um, and thanks for hosting me for this episode. Uh, I'm glad to have the opportunity to share uh, some of my cross-cultural experiences here.
0: Thank you. Thank you. To start off, could you tell us about your cross-cultural journey so far?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely. So I guess I I can go chronologically backward. Uh, so Cambridge was my last stop in the in the United States, and um, so basically college in the south, and then and then graduate school in the north. Um, before that, I did a summer exchange program in Australia. Uh, it was in the western part of Australia, in Perth. Uh, and that exchange kind of um, triggered my curiosity to study abroad so that's and I was in high school um, yeah so that's that's pretty much my cross-cultural experiences living wise that is which is different from the cross-cultural experiences in terms of the kind of uh, people I interact because uh, I would say the United States is a quite multi- multicultural place. So during my time there, I believe I was actually able to meet people from um, every single continent, from um, a lot of different countries. So it wasn't just a U.S. experience for me, and that experience continues to um, continues to extend here in Beijing as well, uh, given the very lively global community here. So yeah cross-cultural experiences uh, sometimes is geographically related, but a lot of times it's also related to the people and community you interact
1: as well. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned, you know, spending a summer in Australia, and that was what prompted you to think about going to um, school in the U.S., but can you tell us a little bit more about your experiences as a student in China growing up and how you came to study in the US?
2: Right. Um, My experiences as a student K-12 in China was typical in the sense that it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of raw memorization and intense drilling. Uh, in the end because if you want to get a pretty high score on the standardized testing that's what you have to do. Uh, It's a little bit different also in the sense that for both my elementary school and middle school there were a lot of extracurricular activities uh, like directing the English theater, making robots and uh, those kind of activities. Um, So I had this contrast of Uh, having the freedom to explore interests, but also having to narrow down uh, my interest or not even necessarily interest, just narrow down my energy and time on doing repetitively the same things.
1: And what was the process like of, you know, um, applying to U.S. schools from China? For example, Um, I imagine, you know, as an international student, were you an international
2: student? yeah I was an international student um the process I would say aside from the part of taking the SAT like the standardized college entrance tests the uh, the rest of the steps were pretty much the same as other uh, as other native students um but also the challenges were very different because there was a lot of Um, I think it was beyond linguistic shock, it was more cultural shock because um, I think there are different narratives in admission systems and the narratives are uh, what the schools are looking for in the students. So I think the key in that kind of application process is actually get the core of the storytelling in the college application process which is very personal and individualized. Uh, they want to understand what's your motivation, your interests, and uh, why you're applying, what you want to do in the future, uh, which is a big shock because if you just take the college entrance exams in China, uh, it's not about individual and personal stories. Uh, it's just about getting the highest scores on the standardized test. Um, so, I would say I spent a lot of time trying to dig out the personal reflections and stories and uh, also in a completely different language and cultural uh, storytelling style. So that was pretty challenging.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine that must have been, you
2: know, a lot of
1: um, yeah. adjustment, <laughs> you know, in having to um, apply to a,
2: a US-based <laughs> education system. Yeah oh just one comment but that was also very uh inspiring for me uh because it was a lot of um awakening and self awareness in the process um before that i didn't have to pause and like think very systematically about those big questions of life
0: was there anything that sort of um helped you get down to the writing of your you know um interests that were unique to you you know, as in terms of self-expression, reflecting your goals, um, especially if you're, I guess, new to that kind of writing or self-expression. Um, yeah. Was there anything that, yeah, helped you along the way? Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, Right. So I had a mentor um, and the mentor was quite inspiring, but also um, particularly challenging because he went to a liberal arts college that's uh that taught him to think very sophisticatedly about philosophy and literature um so I was asked those questions uh with a lot of complexity so basically I was just a high school student uh, and probably just uh finishing up a lot of drilling in math and physics uh and then I was thrown pound those like intense philosophical questions um and then uh, so at first it was quite challenging um but then he was pretty good at asking me socratic questions to uh guide me through the way uh and those questions were pretty concrete and specific um so and also through a lot of conversations with him as well um I think both my thinking and my writing skills were a lot better after, after a season, I would say. Yeah.
0: And then in terms of, you know, um, moving from China to the US, a lot of the dialogue around international students tends to, you know, focus on the adjustment, all of those things. But I'm actually interested in, you know, what do you think as a student from China kind of as a strength, um, you know that stayed with you in the U.S. Or how did you navigate that transition, being who you are, um, experiencing both cultures?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question, and I thought about it before as well. Um, I thought about it because the education system in uh, in a Chinese high school versus that of an American college is. So different, and I, I asked myself, what are the transferable skills and competencies? So, one of the great strengths mm-hmm. is actually grit um, because there is so much, um, so much challenges and difficulties you just have to sc- struggle through as a, uh, in the K 12 system in China because there's no other way out. Uh there's just one way to go, and it's very standardized and you have to um fit into the system so no matter how difficult or challenging it was you have if you want to do well, you just have to you just have to overcome it um so it's i think grits and that kind of strength is is well it turned out to be a gift to kind of um support me throughout my studying in the United States because uh, learning later in college was um, even more challenging, but in different ways. Um, Before that in China, it was just, the challenges for me personally mostly just came came from trying to figure out those math questions and um, physics problems. But um, during my college time, I wanted to learn something different and and I didn't take the safe path, because if I choose the safe path, I guess I would uh, stay on something familiar, like continuing with math or continuing with um, economics, although I did major in economics, but actually... I took even more classes in humanities and arts. And I took even more classes in literature uh, and in PPE, which is politics, philosophy, and economics. Um, and a lot of the thinking styles there were not something was not something that I was prepared for, um, like asking critical questions and structuring the approach. So basically, firstly, how to take apart a question. And thinking uh, critically of how to um, system systematically answer that question. Um, so even the thinking part, just the thinking part, and the writing part was very very challenging for me. Uh, and I remember having gone to the writing center for over seventy times, um, and and finally reaching a satisfying score. And that at that point, score didn't even matter that much. It's it's the ability to be able to um to think and actually write out um my thinking. And that process was extremely frustrating because to be honest I was used to be getting A's and which is also very typical and getting a B would um deeply uh frustrate me if not depress me. Um but because I chose a different path and I remember for one semester or even two semesters, it was quite easy to get a B or even C in the classes because I just really wasn't used to be thinking and writing that way. But after one year and like uh, visiting the writing center for so many times, I was finally uh, able to get A's again uh, in in even the uh, comparative literature and subjects like that. But once again, uh, what's satisfying for that was that finally, even if I got the A's, uh, it didn't, it's it's not the thing that matters the most anymore. Uh, it's really being able to master a different uh, set of thinking and storytelling. And
0: That's really great yeah. to hear how, you know, your grit really went all the way there. I mean, I've also utilized Writing Center so many times myself as well, but I'm so glad to hear that in that process you know you were no longer grade ridden in a sense that you st- it sounds like you enjoy the learning process on its own so I'm glad that didn't you know pressure you down or anything like that in that sense yeah
1: yeah definitely um and so you mm-hmm. mentioned that you know you still majored in economics right but as um you also mentioned and Asuka mentioned in the intro mm-hmm. you have a background in education and you also ended up having an interest in mm-hmm. the humanities and all of that. So what made you, you know, take that path?
2: Right. Uh, that's a really good question. Um, so there were several, actually, yes, the, there were one class that inspired me in my sophomore year. Uh, it was called uh, K-12 International Education uh, at Carolina Navigator. So basically it's a, it's a class that, um mentors you to um, basically bringing cross-cultural experiences in educational setting in a systematic way supported by series. Um, But so right now I can articulate the class pretty well, Um, but back then in college, I just felt, wow, this is such a new world that I never experienced before um, because because I think the class was first designed to inspire us. And then as students, we would go and volunteer in local elementary schools to further inspire the kids. Um, So just by being students ourselves, I never felt so uh, joyful and happy and inspired in a class before. Um, I mean, I had pretty good teachers and um, they were pretty inspiring teachers but I think that class was particularly inspiring because of the interactions and the workshops and the very personal questions that the professor probed to ask us about our cultural experiences and I never felt so uh, related to the materials taught in class because it's just my daily life and because also it was a cross cultural class, um, that I never got the chance to kind of um step back and just jump out of the box and um reflect and think in a very guided way about my cultural identity and what does it mean to what does it mean to be in well, I don't want to categorize and like generalize into boxes, but like what what does it mean to have this um east asian i guess um cultural identity uh and what does it mean to grow up in this way um and especially in a very uh almost completely different cultural setting uh such as uh such as the american culture uh and i think sophomore year was also my second year where I experienced the most intense differences between the two cultures. I mean, I think cross-cultural differences are everyday life. Um and especially as a quite sensitive person, uh, it comes down to like communication styles, how 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 you talk, um and even your gestures and how, how you carry yourself and all those Implicit cultural signals would change uh, when I enter a different cultural setting and even on a personality level. Um, it's it's different as well. Um, so basically that class was so inspiring to me on um, both the cross-cultural level and also the education level because I didn't know that designing such a classroom could be so. Um, transforming um, so. With that interest, I further went into humanities and arts because I wanted to learn about the deeper roots of the quote-unquote Western culture, Um, and that also inspired my interest in education as well.
1: And so um, that's when you went to Harvard Graduate School for Education, right? And yeah, and then after that, Mm -hmm. um, did you, I guess, move on to work in the education field?
2: Uh, yes. So after Harvard Graduate School of Education, I did one year of research um, in Boston. It was a joint research project by faculties from Harvard Medical School, Wellesley College, and also Boston University on Asian American family well-being. And um some of it was about child psychology as well, and also about parent-child relationship. And after doing the research, I, um, I met an entrepreneur in the experiential learning <clears throat> field. And because I was quite inspired by um, a summer camp experience, uh, the summer camp is called Lucy Peterson Camp, and I was quite inspired by that experience in New Hampshire, and I really wanted to bring that kind of experiences um, for, for kids in China. And that entrepreneur was pretty Selena, so she's we're pretty aligned in our mindset of how to design an experiential learning that inspires um, agency and motivation, intrinsic motivation for kids. Um, so... So then I joined, I moved back to China and joined this startup. Um, and after the startup, so we did launch a camp called Robert Frost Camp, named after the poet, um, for, to bring this kind of um, summer camp experiences for kids. And after that, I wanted to know more about um, the education market and landscaping China. Um, so then I went on to another ad tech company.
0: Beijing that's great Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know at two levels like first how was it like moving from the U.S. after learning there and living there and working there for many years and then moving back and also what was it like as a professional to I suppose bring the entrepreneurial learning experience to yeah the students in China
2: right um So I mentioned that uh, Lucy Peterson camp was really inspiring for me. Um, And it was inspiring the way that um, kids there actually feel uh, motivated to do what they want to do. And I think that kind of intrinsic motivation is really lacking for um, kids in China. Maybe not even kids in China, just any system, education system that practice the same things, um, especially because, um, as you can imagine, for children here, the family environment is quite uh, demanding and basically every single minute is planned out um, after school and in school, every single minute is planned out as well and demanded by teachers. So the, the children actually feel tired enough trying to satisfy those de- demands. And um, there was very little space for them to be freely thinking about uh, who am I, what am I interested in, or not even those so philosophical questions. Uh, Sometimes it's just more things like, oh, I want to make, for example, I want to make some Tibetan food um, for my community, I want to learn how to make that kind of food uh, and actually follow up on it. I don't think kids have that kind of opportunity to actually do it. Um, So that's why when I applied to Harvard Graduate School of Education, I said in my personal statement that I hope there to be a creative third learning space for kids where they can explore these kind of um, projects and Um, where they can actually feel the agency and passion for doing what they want to do. And I thought summer camp would be a quite ideal space for that um, because you have uh, the supportive mentors and um, the relevant resources um, for for kids to be coming up and initiate ideas and having someone supporting them through the way, and that's in the ideal setting. Um, So... So how did it work out in at the startup? So I'm glad that the Robert Frost camp actually took place, although the recruitment um, was so difficult because it was very hard to um, convey this idea to parents um, because given the very limited time, they would rather choose something that would improve the scores. Or even if they know their kids are going to be studying abroad, they would prefer to choose some projects and activities that have a very specific goal in mind. Um, uh, Like no matter it's about music or about sports or academic uh, research, at least you have something fruitful in the end. You have a certificate or something like that. Um, so it's very hard to convey the idea of why agency and intrinsic motivation is so important uh, and how it works and why participating in this kind of summer camp can actually uh, realize it because it's just not tangible. And, um, and it's, um, the deliverables are not very concrete. Uh, you can say that there are some changes. Um, but what exactly are the changes and how long lasting they are? Uh, those are all the doubts and pushbacks we had. Um, but fortunately, finally, it took place, although just for once, in Maine. Um, so it was by the ocean in Maine, and we um, it was a co living on an organic farm, and it was so it was so interesting for me to observe. Uh, our campers. So they were teenagers um, from 11 to 14 year olds, And I think for this generation, um, I'm sounding a little old here. For this generation, they're really, um, it's really the digital generation. I think they have their eyes glued to their screens. Um, and for some kids are particularly like that. I remember one girl on the plane over to the U S she watched TV for 12 hours straight. Um, and she just couldn't stop. And the other boy was like that too. He just couldn't leave his, um, video games. So I was a little bit curious because at an organic farm, uh, And in a summer camp setting like that, you're not allowed to use any of the digital devices. So basically for kids who just cannot live without digital devices, how would that turn out to be like for them? And um, so the boy that I mentioned um, before, he was kind of in a sleeping mode for at least two days um, because without being able to play any video games, he looked pretty lost and confused, yeah, it almost seemed like without this virtual world, he didn't know how to function well in the real world um it It was that shocking to observe and and also it's almost like for for the girl who loved watching t v as well um I guess it's because from their previous environment, there wasn't enough activities, structured activities to explore and for them to uh, have the chance to have fun. They just didn't know how to play if you don't have a digital device. Um, So then for this one or two days, we went through this period of kind of um, just living without it. And so getting not addicted I guess and after two days because it's like a two-week uh camp they realized they they had to they had to explore what's right there for them they didn't have other options because they didn't have their phones and then they started to blending um to join our like um sports and just running around on the field and um for morning and for afternoons there were um, different activities such as like protected tree climbing and also canoeing on the lake and um, for uh, morning sessions you can choose what you want to do under uh, at least four activities and uh, and surprisingly they all loved cooking although it was so challenging because it was cooking for one in 20 people um, with the four people team um, and you just saw the uh, you just saw Andy waking up um and he would he would carry out this basket and walk around in the organic garden and pick up salad and uh think very hard about what to cook and uh actually get the meal ready for 30 people um and in the end he was so um he was so humorous and he just cheered people up um And he learned a lot of skills, like in addition to cooking, (laughs) uh, picking salad and cooking meals. And also, I guess, canoeing on the ocean uh, and learning how to climb a tree. Um, And also, like, when there's a school bus, how to decorate a school bus and how to improvise to make music. Um, So so at least he was so, at first he was so resistant and it was all... um, passive learning for him before, and in the end, he just turned out to be this very um, happy and humorous person. So if the story just ends there, it's a very uh, happy ending. Um, However, we all have the reality that we have to face uh, because after these two weeks, they have to go back and there's a ton of homework waiting for them and the environment is a sudden change. Because as you can imagine, at a summer camp, it's very idyllic and uh, you're immersed in nature. A lot of kids said that they didn't know that they could love nature. They didn't know that they could enjoy and appreciate nature. I remember it was at sunset and this boy was saying that like, wow, I really, I really enjoy spending time in the mountains and on the farm and by the ocean and I could not Imagine that before because it was pretty much an urban setting for him um growing up and then he didn't know how it would feel like to be immersed in nature like this um and it's not because there's not no nature in china it's just there were not activities uh designed around this and provided uh enough for the kids um so but, however, after they go back, there is homework and it's it's uh it's it's a very demanding school environment, it's a very demanding family environment again. And, and so uh, as I talked to parents after the summer camp ended, you could tell the changes that they had gradually dwindling out uh, and once the school began, it's everything kind of just went back to how it was like before uh and that can be quite frustrating um and makes me wonder how long lasting that kind of effect it can create although like some kids and parents would say like of course there, there, there are changes um well for me it's kind of a way of counseling i guess um because one change they all see is that the kids after they went back they they all started to do some sort of housework um, because a part of the agency uh, that you feel at community living is that you you have this shared responsibility for the community and you do things out of love for the community rather than uh, rather than out of being demanded by someone to that, that tells you to do it so it's that kind of agency we are hoping to cultivate for the kids and at least for the first few weeks they they went home and they, they tried to cook something they tried to clean something um but i i don't know and i'm not sure how how that is like after half a year or after a year
1: mm-hmm I think um, one thing I wanted to ask you to clarify, because I feel like experiential learning is kind of one of those buzzwords, you know? But like for people who are not familiar with that term, like how would you describe experiential learning?
2: Experiential learning. Um, Well, by words, you would think it's learning by experiences. Um, But I think experiential learning needs to be uh, experiential learning needs to be structured activities um, and it's designed. Um, it's designed usually guided by uh, theories and also it has um, activities supporting that theory. And uh, usually, if it's well designed, there will be a before and after change measurements. But, um, and that's kind of that's the most challenging part for experience, experiential learning, which is how, how do you measure the change? Um, but at least, um, for a well-designed experiential learning, you would know, um, first of all, what's the, what's the target? Is it behavioral change? Is it, is it on a psychological level? Um, or is it about social emotional learning? If so, what are the, What are the metrics or behaviors um, that fall under this category? And for example, for behavioral change, if you identify four behaviors, and then what are the activities um, to be designed to change these um, behaviors and how would you know it's effective? So it's actually quite systematic. Uh, It's not just, oh, you're going to experience something together. So it's called experiential learning.
1: Right. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, thanks for Thank clarifying you. that. And you know, for sharing your experiences working with the camp. I, I imagine it, you know, it's the kind of experience that would stay with you forever, right? Just like interacting with those kids. Yeah, that's really cool.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I suppose, um, in line with that, um, so what was it like for you to transition from life in the U.S. to China? Um, Yes, you've shared um, the work around uh, educating um, students in China. But for you personally, um, what did that transition from the U.S. to China mean to you? And yeah how did you navigate that cultural um change
2: right uh this is actually such a timely question because we just had uh an inclusivity and equity workshop at work last week, and the first question that the facilitator asked us was um how how much or what's to what extent does the role of cultural identity play out in your life and um intuitively, I give them the answer of 90%. Um, and for some other people, uh, it was like 20, 30, 50, but I gave a pretty high score um, because I really do think that um, being a different culture infiltrates everyday life. And um, so basically, I think life. I think life in China, um, okay, how to not generalize it, but basically, I think on a couple of different aspects, I would, so if if social and cultural identity is a construct and it's a performance, I think my performance would be quite different. if i am in a different cultural context um so i have to be very careful about how yeah to yeah put words here so basically yeah, take if please take your time <laughs> and it doesn't have
0: to be uh how do you say like um it can be just purely based on your personal experience because um, uh earlier in our podcast for example we have um conversations around, culture shock so like what did it feel like for you know me and Phoebe to move from our country of birth to another country and also we talk about you know things like reverse culture shock where we come back from where we were to other places and so yeah we're just genuinely curious about um, I'm, I'm guessing that your um, move from the US to China was intentional by your choice but I also kind of wanted to understand you know how How did that go for you? So, yeah.
2: Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So I've moved back from the US to China for over three years now, three years and a half. Um, So at first there were a lot of uh, cultural shocks and just how to navigate your life, that kind of shocks. Uh, I remember, so I remember first year moving back, The shock was like, wow, everything was dependent on my phone. Um, And I remember, like, I remember the first time when I scanned the code and opened the bike uh, or call, and also, like, the one my delivery. So basically, the fast food delivery was really, uh, was really handy. And also, um, and also online shopping kind of um usually the delivery is next day uh and my friends in the state would joke about this and be like oh you're so spoiled and like uh kind of losing patience when the delivery has like longer mm. um longer day expectancy um so but those are all on the service level it's all very uh digital and mobile but also i remember although it felt pretty convenient. Oh, so it definitely felt pretty convenient when I just when I first moved back. Um, but then I was shocked by the, the amount of trash that was created in this process as well. Uh, the overpackaging of the fast deliveries and also um, not only for online shopping, but also for uh, the fast de- delivery food and those plastic bags really cannot be degraded. Um, so those kind of issues, but once again that's really on the uh just everyday um everyday level um and also for cultural shocks because the first startup I joined um although the idea was very innovative um the cultural setting was very so the cultural setting of the team was really really traditional chinese um so my work experience uh, in terms of culture. Um, the first step was really traditional Chinese and then, and then it moved toward um, less traditional Chinese and more just modern fast-paced working uh, to now it's like uh, mm-hmm. a quite an intercultural international setting. Um, but I remember the first step, uh, so basically at my first move, um, there was so much countercultural shock and like difficulty in communication. Um, because people just wouldn't stay their point um and I just want to get to the point um and but like if if you are the kind of very traditional style of communication which is not commonly practiced in a lot of cities um but in that city it's it's like a very tea culture and like um and you have a lot of classic readings with the Taoism and uh, time is quite slow. And um, they would tell you a very, very circular story and, and they will hide the point all the way to the end. Um, and I was like, this conversation could have be done within three minutes and I have to <laughs> listen for so long. And in the end, I still wasn't sure if I got the right understanding. And this problem cannot be solved by asking. Because, uh, and I I kept running into that problem, even at my uh, my second stop uh, as well. And then it's kind of a dead circle. uh, Because for people who are non-linear storytelling, by asking them, what's the point you're trying to make? They wouldn't give you the point. Um, And it's exactly because they don't want to give you the point. That's why they tell a story. And then so I would just get, Stuck in that repeated circle, and in a work environment, that's just so frustrating. Especially in terms of conflict resolution, I wouldn't even know what's the problem, so I don't know how to solve it. Um, so communication-wise, that's one of the big countercultural shock for me.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering how did you navigate that um, differences in communication style? Because um, I mean, I'm also wondering. If this was something based on traditional culture and also something generational or you know um, were people in your workplace mostly from you know China, or did they also come from intercultural background like yourself, or what was it like, and yeah how did you how did you kind of navigate this communication barrier?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question, and um to my surprise, I think even the younger generation of my age um some of them would uh communicate in that quite circular uh style as well and it's very interesting um, right and also it's it's true that um for people who are communicating in those styles um they uh it, it's possible that they didn't have an uh overseas experience so they Stick to the communication style that's uh, that they're used to, uh, and especially because uh, the younger generation loved watching Japanese TV series <laughs> and also cartoons. And it's very funny how, as they're trying to educate me about their communication style and respect their communication style, they would refer a lot to the Japanese culture, actually. Because in uh, cultural studies, there's the a uh, high culture that has a lot yes. of complexity and implications, and uh, there's other culture that's very simple and straightforward. Uh, they would teach me that Japanese word, that which I forgot, but uh, it's translated as read the air.
0: Kuki wo yomu, yes. Um,
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they educate me so much about this word. And I was like, uh, well, can you give me a specific example? And they're like, you have oh to my just God. read the
0: air. <laughs> I'm actually really <laughs> broken to kind of hear that (laughs) I don't know I'm also because I went through a lot of I guess cultural clash that I didn't quite expect when I went back to um, Japan and started working so I'm hearing like it sounds quite similar um, in you know learning how to read between the lines trying to infer what the person means I mean I suppose we grew up kind of doing Mm -hmm. that you know I understand that in work environment um yeah i would i'm also a kind of person who asks a lot of questions and i could clearly tell you know some people didn't want to be asked questions (laughs) so yeah yeah Yeah. um so did
1: you did you guys feel that prior to say living in north america you had that kind of Uh, communication style and then your communication style evolved after living in North America and then going back
2: or have you always been kind of pretty straightforward? That's, That's the real interesting point which is I was such a read the air person before I went to study abroad and I would read the air to the extent that there was so much information overload because I wasn't sure which one was the right way to read the air. There were always so many different possibilities and so many different kinds of implications. So I would really actually seriously get stressed out about guessing what the other person is implying. Um, and uh, I guess after spending seven years in this state, I just hadn't to uh, try so much to read the air for a very long time, and I kind of lost it. And then after I move back, I just have to slowly pick it up. Um, but the good side is that it's no longer so much of, of a information overload. It, it's more manageable now.
1: Wow, yeah, it's interesting. I guess, I mean, communication is something, you know, I think it's a skill, right? That, you know, that you have to pick up in any situation. So.
0: Yeah, I learned to also like probe the person. So like if the person was... I mean, yeah, sometimes people would talk uh, for a long time, but then sometimes it's also not because from the um especially when I was in investment banking, you can't you know spend too much time talking because you have work to do and time is ticking so i um I tried to i guess um kind of also like learn by seeing and listening and probing um for example, like when person ends the line with something, I would repeat that word and kind of be like, so right. Or like, and or so that um, I could draw out what the person really wanted to say or, or reading Mm -hmm. the facial expression or the tone of the voice so that the emotion behind what the person is saying, not just the word. Um, And so, yeah, I, I could kind of relate to what you were going through and, um, these are things that I'm really hoping that that doesn't, you know, because these are the things that we don't intentionally cause, you know, to create a conflicting relationship or anything with with our colleagues. It's just how we, I guess, learn to communicate um, in one culture and then the other. And so I think over time, I also learned to navigate or, how to use, uh, nuances that's more appropriate for each culture. Um, yeah, yeah. But, um, I'm talking too much, so I'll pass on the mic to Phoebe for more questions for you, Zishu. Yeah, yeah. No, that's
1: cool. <laughs> it's actually yeah. almost an hour. Okay. After. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was a good conversation. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So
0: maybe we can, um, ask you final questions in terms of, um, yeah, so thank you so much for sharing all your experiences um, from being a learner and then to an educator in both um, China and U.S. contexts here. And uh, yeah, we were—should we ask two questions? Like, one is, I'm curious to know where would you like to go from here, and where are you headed in terms of? Um, because in season two, yeah, we were focusing on career, but uh, professionally what would be your um goals but also personally too yeah where do you envision to be
2: um yeah that's the question i asked myself as well um i i think i would love to uh keep doing work that's at the um well maybe in a global setting but actually at a cross-cultural setting um because the um so during the seven years in the in the state, it was the first stage of cultural shock, and then uh, get immersed in the culture there and um, be navigating in that system. And then uh, after moving back, especially for the first three years, it was a lot of counter cultural shock. Actually, um, in a very local Chinese environment, in all mm-hmm. aspects, from communication to Uh, The structure of the the organization to how decision making is made and uh, until now I'm uh, kind of uh, in the middle ground um, of um, both working with the very local culture but also uh, having a global team in the same time and I find this kind of setting uh, to be most relevant for me to Navigates, and this is also the setting that I find uh, where I can make the most contribution and um, being a bridge, not only uh, for culture, but also for understanding local issues and um, different uh, business practices uh, as well. So this is the overall, uh, I think, uh, professional or work setting I would prefer um, to have in the future. Um, in terms of industry I am still exploring, uh, it's true that I um, I spend a lot of time and efforts on education innovation and it's something I still feel passionate about. Um, in the meantime, um, I think there are a lot of pressing issues globally um, as well, for example, environmental protection or digital transformation that a lot of companies need to go through uh, and especially um, preparing workforce for the new skills um, because we're entering the fourth industrial revolution and like each of the uh, industrial revolution before a lot of people will be out of um, job if we don't do the training work well, um, but if we do it well, actually everyone would uh, make a happier life and more efficient in a more efficient society as well. So there are a lot of pressing pressing issues that we face, um, and I am uh, I would hope to make a contribution in one of those areas in the future.
1: That's cool. Yeah. Um, any last thoughts or recommendations on? you know, what you'd like to share with our audience, thinking of pursuing a career in the ed- education industry, either in China or the U.S.? In the education
2: industry, um, I would say the education industry, especially in the tech sphere is, um, is uh, very uh, exciting, but also very hectic. Uh, market in China and when we talk about the market it's it's almost completely different from you know education innovation in a charter school or at a summer camp that's more focused on education philosophy and practices um for the education market here it's there are a lot of capitals um and um technologies and um a lot of pressure on growth uh, so it's um it's, it's definitely a very new piece of land um, and, and it lacks, um, well, <laughs> I, I think some uh, very good content would uh, really help for, for students learning. Uh, and also I'm curious if uh, innovative pedagogies can be combined with technology for the future of learning. Um, for example, AI and learning uh, combined together is a very hot topic. But however, um, we are still limited by um, algorithm and, uh, and uh, the techniques to truly enable uh, machine learning for the students so so that maybe one day they can even enjoy um, uh, learning by themselves. Um, So it's um it's a it's still a very complicated land and uh in order to understand this market, um, I would say you do need a lot of analysis and uh insights to help understand how it works and even for people working in the field they can't fully understand it either, <laughs> um, um because there's intense policy regulation, as well, uh so. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, exciting, but also very, very complicated market.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah, I think we'll wrap it up there. So uh, yeah, thank you again, Zishu. This was really great having you on our show. So that was Zishu Chen, a column writer and education innovator in Beijing. We hope this was an inspiring episode for anyone thinking about learning, in China or U.S. context or having a career in the education industry. Thank you so much for tuning in to Culture Crossings. This was Aska
1: and Phoebe. To connect with us, visit our website at www2020 wordpress.com. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time. Bye! Bye.